The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 7, 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. John did a great job with all of those difficult words sometimes, but all have meaning, and that's what's um, incredible about this. You know, you read that story, it reminds me, when I was in in college, uh, my senior year, I was in a fraternity, and and out of some of you have been in a fraternity before, a sorority of sorts, uh, you may have all sorts of opinions about those. some are true, some may not be. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I remember my senior year and uh, where we ate uh, in this specific building, all the different fraternities uh, at least ate. They didn't have like a, a real room, but they had like their room, right? Everybody ate in this corner, everybody here. Same in a lot of campuses. You kind of have creature habit. Some places just become the designated area where a lot of people sit and eat. Well, at, at, at uh, Baylor University, in this particular dining hall, that's how it was. You just ate in this room. That was known as this fraternity's room or this sorority's corner or whatever. Well, I remember senior year, I, I decided, man, I got all these friends in this other fraternity. I'd love to eat lunch with them. So we all go in there, you know, there's like four or five of us go in there and sit at the table. 
And I just remember sitting there and, and just throughout the conversation, looking, feeling eyes on me, uh, feeling the, the, uh, the, the kind of the cloud around me and people, you know, looking and some people just kind of not talking simply because I was in there and I realized, man, I'm kind of a little bit out of my element here. I mean, even as a senior, I'd walk through all the stuff and been through all the fraternity things and kind of knew its place and role. And yet at the same time, there was this kind of oddity to have me in that space to feel like, I didn't belong. You know, you read a passage like this and it can kind of feel off-putting. It can kind of make you feel a little bit like, okay, what's going on with Jesus here? Maybe there's a good explanation for it. Maybe Stacy will explain it to us. I don't know what you're thinking. Or maybe you read it and you go, where's the justice? I can't believe Jesus just considered this woman a dog. That's what's happening in the passage. Where's the justice for that? What, what? Is that culturally appropriate? You know, every, every Monday, our staff will, well, we try to. We haven't gotten a day off and on based on uh, our ability to, to meet. Uh, but we try and like, to, I like for us as a staff to look through the passage together. Because for me to sit with us um, and have other eyes look at the passage beside me before I come up and, and preach it to you, it helps ask the questions, helps look at it. And this last week, as we all looked at it, it, you know, everybody looking in was just looking at it going, there's got to be a good explanation for this because it feels a little off-putting. You know, it's the moment you kind of think, oh, I know Jesus. And then he says something like this and you say, is that the Jesus I know? And so what do we do? I encouraged us. I said, look, this is a tough passage. There are a lot of things about it. I'm I need to really study and mine out. I've looked at it a few times before, but not actually ever preached this. I said, the best way to, to understand a passage is when you open it up, you look at other, pa- when you're at a confusing passage, look at other passages. This is the, the rule of thumb of Bible study, if you want to help, is look at other passages surrounding it to help you make sense of it. And it does. There are so many passages around this. This actual uh, recording is, is not only in Mark, which is the first gospel written, but it's also in Matthew chapter 15. It gives us a little more insight, and we'll look at that. But here's the thing I want to come across to you, and why we look at other passages. Because it's so easy for us, and we feel it in this climate today, that if something comes out of our mouth, if something comes across, we, we're quick to assume. We don't stop to ask. We assume, we say, this must be some cultural thing, Jesus. And we dismiss it. Or we move it out of the way. Or we say, oh, I don't know if I know about Jesus. Or maybe we just disregard this passage and say, I'm just going to hang out in passages that are a little more palpable to me. We're quick to assume rather, and that's what we do in our culture, rather than ask, what's going on with this passage? Why is this happening? What is Jesus getting at here? To the degree that this passage strikes us as odd or difficult should be to the degree that you actually hold the tension for a moment and say, you know what? The Bible isn't about you being comfortable. The Bible, Jesus' mission is not about you and I feeling good in our skin. 
It's about pushing us in our culture. And in fact, there's something interesting in this as you study. If you look at the surrounding passages, at first it looks like he's speaking particularly to this woman and then down below he talks to this man. But what's happening in the background, in the backdrop, if you're to look at this almost like a painting or, or, or some sort of movie or a photograph, you'd see in the background over and over in the discussion, not just the highlighted person, but the disciples. Because the people actually being taught weren't just this woman or this man that are being healed, but the disciples are learning that it's not all about their culture or their standing that creates them to be an advocate. They need Jesus to be their advocate. They need to ask and not assume. So we're gonna look at this passage. It pushes us a little bit. I'm gonna be honest, standing up here, it feels like I'm standing in a refrigerator. My nose is kind of numb at this point. So if I kind of like do this for a minute or stick my hands in my pockets, not that I'm just, I'm trying to actually warm myself up here. Um, but it, this is where the mask helps, you know? This is where all we're like, you know, we, we actually will like masks because of the winter, you know? Um, but we're gonna look at this in two ways. We're gonna look at the, is how Jesus is our cultural advocate, and we're gonna look at how Jesus is our cosmic advocate. That Jesus is our cultural advocate and cosmic advocate through these two passages. You know, in our um, culture, we, we live in a highly, if I heard this before, this is not new, we live in a highly individualistic culture. Uh, that language even may strike a, a nerve with you, but we do. We, we, we are a culture that we are really pushed to be our own advocate, that our voice to be heard. I mean, think about how we depend on reviews. <laughs> think about how we de depend on social media. Uh, think about um, our voice being out there. Uh, because of what Instagram and those things have done, it, it's, been, it's, it's actually created us to be our own celebrity advocate, right, in a sense, even though we're not celebrities. But think about what we, it's created in us. We are pushed to be our own advocate. Uh, even thinking about uh, the ways that's interesting in our culture, uh, it's based so much about how we look that even presenting ourselves back into a good light in culture when we get out of it, uh, when we get out of a, a bad light, our culture looks at us and says, if you, 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 know, you need to be seen in a good light. We, can, we find ourselves trying to put ourselves back into a good light by using those things, reviews, social media, other things. You know, in business, there's the saying, culture eats strategy, right? Some ad, culture eats strategy for breakfast, if you've heard that phrase before. What is it saying? It means you can have the most... Uh, wonderful processes, best strategies. Things can go perfectly well in structure of a company, but unless, if your culture is bad, if your culture is, uh, you know, somewhat decaying or somewhat of a, a of kind of a, a dismissive or, or, or hard culture, it's going to actually erode anything you have in that business because the culture matters. But it's difficult because how do, we, how, do we, how do we advocate for ourselves? How do we change that? Dave Matthews, the great theologian, said this in his song, Typical Situation. I love how he said this. Old song, but it, it so captures it. Listen to what he says. Everybody's happy. 
Everybody's free. Leave the big door open. Everyone will come around. And then the, the tune changes. Same line, same song. Why are you different? Why are you that way? If you don't get in line, we're gonna lock you away. Isn't that the, the two sides of the coin of, of what it feels like in culture? Everybody's happy, everybody's free. Get in line. Because if you don't, we'll lock you away. It's, it's, it is so balancing on the head of a pin. And all of us had to have to advocate for ourselves. And we have to have our voice heard. You know, Jesus finds himself in this first passage, particularly verses 30, 24 to 30, withdrawing. It says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus finds himself withdrawing, and he withdraws to Tyre and Sidon, which is a very heavily Hellenistic Greek area. But even there, his his kind of, uh, his, you know, fame, so to speak, has gone, gone before him. People still kind of know who he is, have heard about him. And there's an element here where Jesus is walking into a mix, a blend of cultural center. Not only is it a Hellenistic Greek element, then he's sitting there and you have all of this, 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 you know, the disciples with him, you have this woman coming who's Syrophoenician and she's a woman and he's balancing, what, is it, what do I do in this moment with this woman asking for me? He's in that cultural context of what, how do I balance, how do I hold all the things around me? <laughs> do I advocate for the disciples? Do I advocate for this woman? What do I, you can begin to see it's bringing up. See, the past... Tyre and Sidon was actually something, this, this passage almost parallels to a passage in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, where Elijah, one of the most famous prophets, actually performed a similar healing to a woman from a similar region. So in that region, it wasn't just that Jesus came and he was famous. They've had in their history of people from another religion being these Israelites coming and healing. But then you mix that with they have the God of healing, Asclepios, which was the one that they worshiped to heal people. And that was actually the God that Elijah put down. He condemned. And then here comes Jesus. Here comes somebody who they know has done healings, performed them, and they're trying to make sense of what he's walking into, not just a Greek Hellenistic place, but do they think he's a magician? Uh, just a god? Asclepios has come into their town? Is he just a miracle worker? What is he? But over time, you see, and even in the Old Testament, that what God does with culture is he flips it on its head. What's happening here is that Jesus is not just coming to destroy culture, he's coming to enter it and transform it. See, also in this, in Matthew's account, this woman's called the Canaanite woman. And there are social barriers. She's a Gentile. There are religious barriers that you notice that Jesus says, and in, in 15, when the Canaanite woman comes, instead of saying, 
um, that she was a Syrophoenician. Jesus also says in verse 24 of chapter 15 of Matthew, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel before he jumps into the parable of the dog and the children. He's giving her the idea of what does this mean? That the norm, that what he was there to do was for first to his standard, his mission was to bring the gospel, the good news to the Jews. And so you see the disciples know this, they're playing into that, even in, the, in both these passages. Especially in chapter 15 of Matthew, they're like, send her away, get her out of here. And Jesus isn't so much as it sounds saying, hey, I'm here for the Jews, you need to go away. He's just stating, do you know why I'm here? Because what he's doing is he's taking the disciples and he's drawing them in. It's brilliant. To say, you know my mission is first to the Jews, just as he does the Pharisees and everyone else. He's drawing out a number of cultural issues, religious, social, gender bias. And what he's doing is becoming, saying what needs to be is an advocate for them. Because here's the issue. The disciples in this passage are watching this and thinking they're standing before God. Their acceptance, their advocacy is their culture. As they say in this passage, in, in even Matthew, it says, the disciples say, uh, said, came and said, send her away for she's crying out after us. Get her out of here. We're here. We deserve this table. This is ours. Jesus is drawing out a huge issue here for them. That what they believe is correct for their position, for their advocacy in the kingdom of God is their culture. Just being close to Jesus, not being with him. See, there, there are a couple things that she's doing that's genius. Why is Jesus, is Jesus the true advocate? One is, it, it, what's fascinating here is, this woman teaches us, and this happens over and over in these accounts, that the Gentiles will actually teach the Jews what faith means. <laughs> that those who are not even at all supposed to be followers of Jesus, that when they focus and they show, that's what faith is, focus on Jesus, they actually teach, so teach the Jews around them, those that are supposed to walk. This happens again in another, in another place with a soldier who Jesus actually says he marveled at this man's faith. This crusty old Gentile soldier who said, I'm not even worthy to come to you. If you just say the word, you can heal my servant. And Jesus marveled. Why? Because they get something that even the disciples are missing. She is first humble about her position. Notice Jesus throws this out. He says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You know what's amazing about what this woman does? Is that she first realizes she is humble about her own position. And standing. She doesn't fight back. She doesn't demand her rights. She even puts herself into the parable to say, yes, even the dogs, though, need the crumbs. Even those eat the crumbs. Even those 
at below the table that aren't even worthy to come up, eat those. And, but here's the difference. The word dog was typically used in these elements of, of like scavengers. But this Greek word that Jesus used for dog here is different than any other place. It's actually the term for a little dog, a puppy. In other words, it's different. It's for a household pet. It's actually a term of endearment. We just recently, I was curious about this. Some of you may have gotten pets too. But I was curious, what was the, the jump from number of pet owners from 2019 to 2020? And I, I've asked a couple of people, like, what do you think it was, like three times, four times the amount? One, one hour, and I looked it up, like, so I wasn't just, I was trying to find stats on it. It's hard to find. I found where it said 12 times, 12 times the amount in 2020, that we so much wanted some sort of sweet attachment. And isn't that what a pet is? It is like attachment to the max. It just loves you and you just love it. And there's no, there's no you know, complexity. You're like, I just need love without complexity. Get a pet. And there's 2020, 12 times the amount, pet sales, animals, all that. We got a dog. We got a little dog, actually smaller than we even thought he was going to be. His name is Cinco, uh, meaning five. Cinco, like the Spanish word five. And uh, he's a fifth member of our family. We love him. But you know, it's sweet. It's interesting. At first, when I read this passage, I I read it as I've often read dogs into the accounts. Dog is usually used as a negative term. Here, it is like Cinco, where he has learned to come, and he's small, but he loves to sit up on his hind legs almost like a little ferret, almost like we call it meerkat. And he'll stand up and just stand, and I'm like amazed by his balance. Because he, and he'll just sit there. He just sits and waits patiently. And he will just sit and sit and sit and just watch us. And, and you become so aware of what you're eating that you eventually go, man, dude, dude is patient. He is going to wait and eat. And after we get up, I'll notice, be a chair, be at a couch, be it wherever it is, he will jump up afterwards and look ever, everywhere we've sat to see, is there anything these people have left behind? I mean, he is genius. He's like, you sat there, I'm gonna check that out. My boys sit on the couch. Even if they didn't have food, they, he'll, he'll jump up there and be like, were you sloppy? Can I find something? See, the word dog here is that. It is this sweet little bit, this little animal that my, my, my wife says, so she's hilarious about it. She says it perfectly. I can't believe that we have this animal in our house. There are squirrels, there are just birds, and we just have this animal that does all those things in our house that just lives with us and we treat it just like one of our own. This is more the picture of what Jesus is getting at. He's actually leaning into her and the disciples would hear the difference between the usual word for dog, scavenger, nasty, out in the street, not let in homes, to this word, and they would begin to say, what is he doing? He's leaning in, and she leans back, and she, he tests her in that way. So much so that she realizes 
She knows her cultural standing. She knows where she fits. She knows she's a woman. She knows she's a Gentile and she owns it because she doesn't need it to define her. And here's what's incredible about what Jesus does. He pins it. He tests her faith. He throws it out there for her to actually teach the disciples about their cultural hangups. And isn't that what we have? How much do we actually think this, and, and man, we can pick on our Southern culture all we want too. And some of you have those cultural hangups. And maybe some of you are here even this morning and, and this is your first time back into a church in a while. Maybe it's your first time watching in a while. Maybe it's your first time ever. Because maybe the cultural hangups of what a church is has been your advocate or has been a bad advocate. Maybe you've tried to utilize some sort of religiosity to do that. Or maybe being close to Jesus but not with him. Meaning you've been around him a lot. But him being your advocate means he actually speaks on your behalf. He actually stands in that. See, we read a passage like this and we think, welcome to the 21st century, Jesus. This doesn't work here. How dare you call this woman a dog? But you know what he's really doing? He's actually leaning in, stating the reality of, I'm not a magician, I'm not a miracle worker, and let's see if your faith is on me or anything else. And she teaches the disciples, the followers of Jesus, what it really means to follow him. Because her focus, her persistence is what? Not on her, she's humble about her position, but she's persistent about what? Jesus's position. She's persistent and stays because of that. Because she doesn't get caught up. She owns her cultural hangups. And I think for a lot of us, we think we culturally deserve things based on where we are. I and mean, we could talk about it politically, we could talk about it socially, we could talk about it vocationally. I mean, this is, this is like a fish in a barrel kind of thing. I mean, this is easy. But the, the point I want to ask is, let's be honest about it. Do we think we deserve, based on our culture, based on living in America, based on growing up in a, a Christianish home, based on things that that's why we get to be with Jesus? That's our standing. Do we think because we, you know, and, and do we look at other people? Think about the disciples. Do we look at other people, be it politically, be it racially, be it socially, And be it, we look at their hangups and we say, we deserve better because look at their hangups. This passage is forcing us to be uncomfortable for a reason. Because we need to be humble about our position and we need to be persistent less about our cultural position and more persistent about Jesus' position. Because if we do that, it's gonna transform. It's gonna land the plane in our lives in a different way of practically loving one another. We won't have to have discussions about all the cancel culture stuff. I'm sorry if that bothers you or offends you, even me saying that word. There's all, the, all this stuff out there. Left, right, you, that, us, them. Why is it all that way? 
What if the church really leaned in less about our own cultural position, owned where we are, were humble about our cultural position, be it in any way, politically, racially, socially, vocationally, whatever it is, and lean more into our position with Jesus, what do you think that would look like? And some people will miss that. It means we're not just around Jesus, we're with him. He is our advocate. He's the one we completely lean into to actually stand in the gap between us and everything else. So that when the fingers get pointed at, we go, you know what? Instead of going, we pointing back, instead of saying, I own this, I, here's my culture, your culture, that, we go, you know what? Yeah, I am. And I'm gonna put my focus, what faith is, my focus more on who Jesus is rather than who I am. And that's what transforms us. That's what changes us. See, this next passage in here, what's so powerful to it is that Jesus, again, finds himself in a position where he withdraws and he does this in another Greek area. What I think's incredible is that when Jesus goes and he heals this man who is, um, is both mute and deaf, the issue wasn't so much that Jesus just performed another healing. He pulls him aside, he does it quietly so no one can get the idea that there's any funny business going on. But the thing that's powerful from this <clears throat> is that when in verse 34 it says, he looked up to heaven and he sighed. He sighed. Why in the world, this is the only passage, this is the only place where this passage is. Mark, Matthew, Luke, John don't have this. Mark is the only one who writes about this. And it's the only place, it's very rare when you see the emotion of Jesus connected. It's so fascinating. You don't pick up on it. I don't know about you, I've been watching more shows lately with subtitles. Maybe it's because we've run through other shows. <laughs> Didn't need them. And they will say things like indistinct chatter or you know, name the song that's playing or whatever it is. But I've seen at least a third of the time, in parentheses, it'll just say sigh. Sigh. And, and I've started to pay attention to it more of not just reading the sigh, but like what's happening in the scene. It's the person coming in contact with intensity and all they can do is just exhale. Jesus in this moment is brushing against every bit of the intensity, the difficulty, the anxiety that you and I encounter. And he's looking heavenward because he is not just the cultural advocate we talked about. He's the cosmic advocate who feels that intensity but bridges it by looking heaven. He's not looking internal. He looks heavenward because it is by God's grace that this man would be healed. He's the one that stands in the gap. See, this table we come to is the epitome of what it means to have an advocate. 
Because we can't literally come to this table and taste of it and eat of it unless we have an advocate. In fact, I would encourage you not to come to this table unless you know that Jesus is your advocate. Because otherwise, you're making yourself your own advocate before God, saying, I can, I can eat of this. I can, I'm clean enough. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm the advocate, both on a, what, horizontal level and a vertical level, culturally and cosmically before God. He is the one who stands in the stead. And his sigh actually connects to another word later on that Paul would write in Romans when he's trying to describe in Romans chapter eight of what all of creation groans for, it's the same word, groaning, sighing, is groaning for renewal. It's groaning, we are groaning, what our sighs are. And haven't we sighed a lot in the last year? If we could look at the subtitles of our life in the last year, how many times would sigh pop up? It's because we have a God who has done what we cannot do. You see, he was the only child who could actually eat at the table. And yet he allows himself to not only just not be a dog, but be removed altogether so that we might actually, what, Gentiles, come to this table. Not one of us in this room save the saving faith of Jesus, the cultural advocate for us Gentiles who were not, we are the dogs. We're the dogs made children because the only son allowed himself away from the table, was cast out so that we may eat and taste of the true advocate for your life. Man, doesn't that transform everything? Doesn't that change the way you see yourself culturally, cosmically, before God? With that, let's stand together.